Welcome to another Apologist Bookshelf podcast. This is Gary Zacharias. I want to return to a book that I covered at uh, one time called Welcome to College. This is the second edition by Jonathan Morrow, subtitled A Christ Follower's Guide for the Journey. And uh, that's exactly right. You know, I, I teach out at a college, and I see a lot of lost students, a lot of people that don't know what they think. They don't know why they're there. They don't know where they're going. And uh, as a result, I think a lot of them are pretty uh, susceptible to influences by the adults in their lives out there. And the, the students that are there who know what they want and what they're doing and they know what they believe are in a far better position to successfully navigate college. So this book does a great job. I want to look at chapter two. Uh, he calls it Think Christianly, and it's called Cultivating a Christian Worldview. And I think that's a, a really powerful thing. We want people that are out at college to have a basic framework for how they think about everything. It starts off with a quotation from Arthur Holmes, who says this, All truth, no matter where it's found or by whom it's discovered, is still God's truth. And uh, Morrow starts off saying a lot of Christians have bought into a lie, and that's that religious beliefs are supposed to be kept private. So you're supposed to have a sacred part of you, and you're supposed to have a secular part of you. And what's sacred, those would be your personal beliefs about God. That's supposed to be kept separate from what's secular. That's the public sphere. And he said, of course, that's artificial, and that's more than artificial, it's false. Morrow says there really isn't any separation between what you believe and public life, especially for the Christian. I think that's true. Every, every issue we deal with as a society, in a democracy at least, now, if you're in a totalitarian system, uh, it's pretty simple. You know, you just shut up and uh, try not to get thrown into jail. But here, we all have a voice. And whoever says anything is speaking from a particular worldview and speaking from some idea of your personal beliefs. So anyway, he starts in uh, talking about everybody's got a worldview. And he needs to define it, and he does. I've done a talk on worldviews, and uh, it's really important. Everybody's got a worldview. Uh, we don't think of it. Sometimes we, we couldn't even articulate it clearly. But he said what it is is a, a web of habit-forming beliefs about the big questions of life so that we can make sense out of all of our experiences. So I like that. He quotes somebody who says, Whenever we bump into the world, our worldview has a way of spilling out. It comes out in what we think and love, say and do, praise and choose. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your belief. You might be a Buddhist. You might be a Muslim. You might be an atheist. You might be a skeptic. Whatever it is, we all have worldviews. And, of course, the catch is they can't all be true. They can't all be true. They make contradictory claims. But he says, you know, there are three helpful questions to figure out how your worldview works and how to test a worldview. First, is it rational? Secondly, is it livable? Third, who says so? So he says, here we go. Let's take a look. What would it look like in action? So first, he says, let's deal with naturalism. He said, that's kind of the basis of a lot of atheism today. It just says everything around us can be uh, adequately explained by scientific laws. But he says, you know, that's irrational down deep. That's the first question, right? Is it rational? He says, it's, it's irrational because if the universe is just physical, then where do non-physical things like souls and reason and truth and logic and consciousness and free will come from? You know, exactly right. 
if if it's true that naturalism is the uh, way the universe is, if that's all there is, what's right here that we can touch and taste and you know all the molecules in motion, then we don't have free will. It's just chemicals sloshing around in our brain. So he said, in a naturalistic world, if we somehow become alive, then why do we think we should trust our thinking? Because after all, we, all we've got is just selective advantage for the species that are surviving, not truth. He said, there are a lot of false beliefs I could hold that could help me survive. So why would you trust your brain if it's an accidental creation coming out of this, uh, this closed universe? All right, so there's the first issue. Is it rational? And he says, no. He says, what about atheism? Is it livable? He said, no, because it doesn't deal with the problem of evil. How so? Well, he says, according to atheism now, remember we're looking at atheism, how it's doing as a worldview, there is no evil. Why? Because there's no way the world is supposed to be. Where do you get an objective standard of good and evil? If there's no God, it's just us. So he said you couldn't call the six million Jews that were killed in the Holocaust, you couldn't call that evil, it's just what happened. So it's an indifferent view, this uh, atheistic view is indifferent to human suffering. So if you're powerful enough, if you're strong enough, if you're cunning enough, you can get away with it if you're an atheist because there's no ultimate standard, there's no judge out there of human behavior. You might as well go for it, you know, step on whoever you need to. So he said a worldview that doesn't account for evil, it fails to account for evil, and doesn't have any meaningful hope rooted in reality, he says that fails the livability test. So it's unlivable. What was the third question that he said? It's the who says so question. So let me go over those three questions again because I think they're so useful. How do you judge worldviews? You ask, is it rational? Is it livable? And who says so? So what's the who says so? In other words, where does ultimate authority rest? Is it just the changing opinions and our evolving morality of the human race? He said, not for Christianity. It's rooted in the claims of Jesus, who predicted his own death and, and then rose from the dead. That authenticated his claims. Now, he covers that in a separate chapter, so he's not going to deal with that. So he said, this man, Jesus, there is your authority to go to to speak about the big questions of life. So he says, uh, after asking those three questions, he said, People may not ask those questions, and they may not really think carefully about the world, but they still have a worldview, and it affects every area of their life. Every person filters the information that comes into them, into their minds, through this worldview. And so he said, we as Christians need to think Christianly in this world that's anything but Christian. So um, I'm just adding this here myself, but just think about like putting on a pair of dark glasses Everything that we interpret that comes into us is filtered through that, that dark glass, whatever the color of that glass is. And he said, we need to do that. We need to think Christianly in a world that doesn't think about much Christianly. What did Jesus say? He said, this is what you're supposed to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, your strength, and all your mind. And that's everything. That's your mental life. That's your emotions. That's your action. He said, there should be a difference in the way a Christian student and a non-Christian student go through high school and college. Christians are not supposed to accept uncritically what the world tells us. He said God's already talked to us through creation, the scriptures, and then through Jesus. And if that Christian worldview is true, and he said there are a lot of reasons to believe it's true, 
then it's true for all of life, not just Sunday morning, not just singing songs, not just reading your Bible. I think that's a really good question. He said, if the Christian worldview, um, he said, if it best answers these human questions like where we come from, who we are, how we should live, why the world is such a mess, what's our destiny, if it's true for those things, it's true, he says, for way more than just two hours on a Sunday morning. It should be for every day of the week. And again, this is me talking, but uh, we've separated ourselves, I think, as Christians. We think Christianly on Sunday, but not so much Monday through Saturday. We don't think about it when it comes to our finances. We don't think about it when it comes to our leisure time activities, the people we hang out with. Um, all these things, we, we think of it in kind of a worldly way, and it's only Sunday morning where we put on a different pair of glasses. And he said that shouldn't be. He said there shouldn't be any separation between our public life and our religious private life. He says if you're going to make your spiritual part segregated from the rest of your life, you're living an unhealthy, fragmented life. And that's going to keep people from maturing as Christ followers. And I'd say amen to that. And we're not supposed to withdraw from society. We're not supposed to be hiding until Jesus returns. We're supposed to engage the, engage the culture. Jesus used terms like salt and light. You know, they were metaphors that were supposed to permeate the world around us. We're not supposed to be of the world, but we are supposed to be in it. And he gives a couple of references there in John 17, verses 15 to 23, and 1 John 2, 15 to 16. So he says, look, it doesn't matter what kinds of activities we're involved in. He makes a list. I think this is really good. This is what I was talking about just a minute ago. It doesn't matter whether you're watching a movie, whether you're voting, you're studying for a class, you're in a public office somehow, you're, you've got a job, you're shopping, you're talking to a neighbor, you're watching the news, you're working in a lab, you're creating art, you're playing golf, you're designing architecture. It doesn't matter any activity. We should pro approach all of that Christianly. He's, now, he admits, he said, you know, sometimes it can be a challenge to figure out exactly what that looks like. But he said, God will show us if we seek him. And then he said, toward the end of the chapter, he said, you know, he said, in case you haven't noticed, <laughs> there's a worldview struggle going on around us. Yeah, and I've talked about that myself, that there's a warfare, in a sense, going on. And Amaro claims that there are three dominant worldviews in, in this day, scientific naturalism, postmodernism, and Christian theism going on in our country and, and, frankly, around the rest of the world. And these are the three that are in a constant struggle. First is scientific naturalism. What is that? It's just saying that this physical universe is all there is. Only material exists. And how do we learn about it? Science. That's the only source of knowledge. Everything else is just conjecture. That means we don't have a soul. There are no angels. There's no God. The supernatural is excluded. There's no spiritual reality. The grave is all there is. So that's scientific naturalism. Then there's postmodernism. He said it's kind of slippery, hard to come up with a definition, but it's a form of cultural relativism. What does that mean? That according to postmodernists, truth and falsehood, or what's real or what's unreal, or what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, those are just different linguistic communities. So in other words, one community can have one definition of what's true or what's real, and another community may have a different definition. There's no one way to view the world. It's You're seeing things through your limited com community's perspective. So reality is something basically you're creating or com your community is creating. It's, it's redefining truth and language and reality. So everything's on kind of shaky ground there. 
And he says then in stark contrast, in contrast to those two worldviews, you've got Christian theism. What does that say? Well, if there is a God, he's the God of the Bible, he's revealed himself ultimately in Jesus, and it values both the physical and the non-physical parts of reality. So Christian theism recognizes there's real evil out there. It understands that the world is broken, that it's lost, and it needs redemption. So he said we've got to hold to a Christian worldview as he ends the chapter here. <clears throat> he said we should not be leading fragmented lives that end up with us becoming Christian schizophrenics. We shouldn't be mindlessly absorbing the ideas of our culture. So at the end, he says, as a college student, you have the opportunity to establish the biblical habit of living an integrated life for God's glory. In other words, think Christianly. What I like, too, is at the end of the chapter, he does a couple things. One, he, he has something called the big ideas. In other words, what were the main points? And then he's got a, a collection of books that people can go to next and some uh, websites. So in this case, the big ideas, one, worldview is a web of habit-forming beliefs about the biggest questions of life. Everybody's got a worldview. All worldview, worldviews can't be true. Why? Because that means there is no a reality out there. People discover reality. They don't create it. Also, he says if Christianity is true, then it's true for more than just two hours on Sunday. And he says there are three worldviews that compete for our uh, attention and for preeminence in America, scientific naturalism, postmodernism, and Christian theism. And then he says... All truth is God's truth, so we shouldn't be living fragmented lives. We're supposed to integrate our lives for God's glory. He references 1 Corinthians 10.31. Then he's got some books here at the end, and one of them is actually one that I've done before by Jonathan Morrow called Think Christianly. I've done a podcast on that. He references Paul Copan, Nancy Piercy, and others. So um, excellent book again. One more time, it's called Welcome to College. And I'll come back to it more than once because I like this a lot. So he's got questions that he deals with in this book, like how do you grow spiritually and follow Jesus on campus? How do you manage your time? What about peer pressure? How do you deal with doubts and challenges to your faith? So terrific book. J.P. Moreland, whom I admire, said the single best volume I've ever read for preparing students to follow Jesus and flourish as his disciple in college. Uh, it's been out for a while, so I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you could probably get a used copy someplace. It might be reasonable. This one came out, uh, first edition was 2008. I'm getting material from the second edition. That's 2017. So it's been out, and uh, you might be able to get yourself a cheap copy. It is worth it. Even if you're not in college or you have no plans for college, it's still a terrific read. You'll get a lot of good out of it, just like the material I was talking about today. You didn't need to be in college to appreciate that. So I hope you consider that book. Jonathan Morrow is the author. Well, thanks. We'll do another podcast soon.